0: You know, and then you talked about text. So in another real life situation, a 16 year old reports that her boyfriend asked to read her text, her text messages. And when she said no, he grabbed and twisted her arm until she let go of her cell phone. What kind of behavior could be going on here from your perspective?
1: Sure. So that touches on several different types of dating violence on our dating violence continuum. So the asking to see your phone and check your texts would be like controlling behavior. That's a form of psychological aggression, And that's one that's really common for folks of all ages, but particularly in adolescence where a lot of people are experiencing those really strong feelings of jealousy for the first time. And that's maybe not something they've had experience with in their life before or not having, I like to say, feelings this loud, right? Feelings that are like so loud in your head that you can't think about anything else and you're having a hard time regulating your emotions, and we also know that in adolescence, our prefrontal cortex, like the frontal lobe of our brain that controls decision-making, isn't fully developed yet, right? So that part of our brain that says, wait, stop and think, maybe this is not the best decision for me right now, that doesn't fully come online until age 25. So that combination of these really loud or strong feelings of jealousy, you know, worrying that the partner might be cheating on them or talking to somebody else we don't want them to talk to, combined with that impulsivity and not being able to have like full control over our decisions, that's kind of a perfect storm for doing things like grabbing your phone and then grabbing you and then crossing that line into physical dating violence as well. And that's where we see a lot of adolescent dating violence conflicts escalate. So I'm not saying it's necessarily true in this situation, but In a lot of situations, then if somebody grabs your phone and grabs you, you're going to push them back or you're going to hit them and then things escalate from there. And that's where the risk for severe dating violence, where somebody can really get hurt, ends up happening.
0: Adolescent dating violence in the United States, as concluded by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and the World Health Organization, has been identified as a serious public health concern how serious really is this problem and also why so and also i want to ask well let me let you answer that first how serious is this dating violence problem
1: it's pretty serious um it's a really big public health concern because estimates vary depending on like the age group that you're including are you including younger adolescents or just older adolescents? are you doing a nationally representative survey in the U.S. or an internationally representative survey or just looking at a more specific local area? But one study that I like to cite by Taylor Mumford from 2016, where they did do a nationally representative survey of adolescents from ages 12 to 18, those adolescents, 69% of them reported some form of dating violence victimization in the past. So somebody had done some form of psychological, physical, or sexual violence to them, And importantly, they also reported that 63% of them had perpetrated some form of dating violence in their lifetime. And this was more common, not surprisingly, among older adolescents. And actually, there was an interesting gender difference they found that girls reported perpetrating dating violence more often than boys. So that kind of goes against like sort of the societal expected notion that of intimate partner violence in adulthood, right, where this is something men do to women. But it's really important to keep in mind that adolescent dating violence doesn't always look like adult intimate partner violence. And girls can sometimes perpetrate dating violence more than boys do. Now, that's not to minimize the fact that girls do disproportionately face more severe consequences of dating violence like in especially in terms of severe physical and sexual dating violence so the impact on girls is greater but if we look at that broad continuum of psychological aggression and things like you know hitting slapping punching grabbing each other grabbing the phone throwing things girls actually perpetrate dating violence more than boys do. It's also important to keep in mind that we need to be more inclusive of adolescents of all genders and all sexual identities, and not assuming that, you know, adolescent girls necessarily have a partner who identifies as male, for example.
0: So that paper that you quoted, uh, can you tell us again that study that showed these statistics?
1: Yeah, so that's the STRIVE study, S-T-R-I-V, by Taylor and Mumford. And um, they also found that there was 18% of the youth reported they'd been the victim of sexual abuse and 18% had been the victim of physical dating violence. So there are a couple other national studies and some other local studies that really suggest that for the more severe forms of dating violence, those can range anywhere from kind of like the 10 to 20% range, like physical and sexual violence in terms of victimization. So um, that's like one in five adolescents is experiencing physical or sexual victimization. And the majority of adolescents, like up to 70%, are experiencing some form of dating violence, including psychological aggression. So not only is it like a public health issue, it's something that affects basically everybody to some degree. Like if you haven't experienced it yourself, you're pretty sure to know somebody who has. So what is the most common type of dating violence reported by adolescent girls? So that would be, so it depends on sort of, I mean, it doesn't actually depend in terms of like what the most common one is, but for adolescents in general, it's psychological aggression or psychological dating violence. So that could be anything from calling your partner names to checking their phone to see, you know, that kind of controlling behavior to see who they've been talking to or where they are. It could be telling them what to wear. It could be putting them down, telling them that they don't look good or that no one else is going to love them the way that you do. It could be threatening to hurt yourself. There's a whole different spectrum of sort of like non-physical or sexual psychological violence. And so that's the most commonly perpetrated and the most commonly experienced by both adolescent boys and girls. But adolescent girls are more likely to perpetrate that.
0: So you said girls abuse boys and boys abuse girls, but it looks like girls abuse boys more from the yeah. studies.
1: Yeah. And so there are some other studies that have found different results, but, and particularly in, like I said, in terms of the more severe forms of physical and sexual dating violence, of course, generally, I think the best take home message is that adolescent dating violence tends to be mutual in many cases. So, I've worked for many years on an ongoing project called Project Date Smart, which was developed by Dr. Christy Rizzo, um, who's an associate professor at Northeastern University. And Project Date Smart was originally developed for adolescent girls who'd been involved in violent relationships. And people would usually say, oh, they're the victims of dating violence. And we'd say, no, you can qualify to be in the study if you've been the victim or the perpetrator. And in fact, most of the girls in the study reported both. And that's consistent with, you know, nationally representative samples as well. And you can see kind of how that happens with that example you gave earlier, where, you know, someone yells at somebody else, someone grabs their phone, the other person pushes them or throws the phone and things escalate from there, right? And in a scenario like that, technically, both people are perpetrating some form of dating violence. And technically, both people are the victim, um, regardless of who started it. So it's a scenario in which helping all young people and all people of all ages to brush up on their emotion regulation and their conflict resolution skills can be really helpful.
0: You know, gender and power dynamics in relationships can intensify hostility and coercion toward young women, particularly young women with intersectional identities who are at the greatest risk for power-based violence. And there are unique risks. Adolescent girls with a history of sexual coercion are more likely to engage in health risk behaviors. And this affects the kinds of adults they become. There can also be certain tactics used by a perpetrator that women need to know and understand. So in another real life scenario, A 17-year-old girl patient reports multiple adverse childhood events, including divorce of her parents and child abuse. What could this life history do to this lady in respect to, for instance, her choice of contraceptive methods? So I know we talked about, I introduced this with a variety of things, you know, certain teenagers with intersectional identities being at risk, and young people that have had negative, multiple adverse childhood events affecting choices they make in adulthood. Can you just talk a little bit about these scenarios with us?
1: Sure. So I wanted to get back to your your previous question as well in terms of why are adolescents who identify as members of minoritized groups or underserved populations more at risk for dating violence and sexual risk behavior? And you touched on a couple of those things in this example. So gender and power dynamics, for example. So even though adolescent girls in some cases perpetrate more dating violence, it's really important to consider the entire context, right? And so adolescent girls are more likely to have older partners with the young moms that I work with. That's something that's pretty common, even to have adolescents dating folks in their 30s. And that can come with a lot of power dynamics, um, both in terms of gender and, you know, sort of men exerting more control in the relationship or having ideas like what we call in the sexual violence literature, rape myths, right? So the idea that if somebody dresses a certain way that they're asking for sexual violence, right? Or if somebody is like, well, you know, walking on the street alone, or if somebody is in a relationship with you that you should just be allowed to have sex with them whenever you want, right? So there's a lot of, and so all of those beliefs Beliefs also really intersect with culture, right? And so, Obviously, different cultures have different views on how men and women should act and what's acceptable in heterosexual relationships, what's acceptable in all relationships that can really come into play. And especially if you have an older partner, and again, I'm biased because young moms um, are my favorite population to work with. But if you have a child with that partner, you may be dependent on them for financial support, for housing, for transportation, and that creates really big power gaps, right? And so, for young people, especially young women who grow up in poverty, who grow up without access to maybe support from their family of origin, like in your example, where maybe you don't have a relationship with your parents, because your biological parents, because um, it wasn't great when you were little, because you had child abuse, or maybe there was a divorce and you're not in contact with one parent anymore. That can really increase your risk for being dependent on a partner, particularly if they're older and they're providing you with that emotional and financial support as well. So there's a lot of things that we have to keep in mind when we think about how an individual adolescent may be more vulnerable to dating violence. We know that being a young mom increases your risk. We know that um, identifying as LGBT increases your risk for dating violence involvement. We know that having a disability, a mental or physical disability, increases your risk for dating violence involvement. So, you know, also race and ethnicity. So, we also know that Black adolescent girls and Latinx or Hispanic adolescent girls are also at increased risk for dating violence in some situations, although the STRIVE study did not find that, actually. They only found effects of age and gender. But in other studies, they found that Black and Latinx adolescent girls in particular are more likely to be the victims and perpetrators of dating violence as well. So it's really important, especially for providers working with adolescents, to think of each adolescent in context, right? And ask them, like, What about your identity is important to you and understand their lives and the context that they live in and those different power dynamics they might have in their relationships, which might increase their risk?
0: So what what if this is a situation whereby the, the girl or the feminine partner is the one with the power in the relationship? How does that ping pong, you know?
1: That's super interesting. Um, you can see that playing out in a couple of different ways, right? I mean, first of all, if we take a feminist perspective, then inherently in our society, right, it's men who have the power. So it's, it's a little tricky to sort of shift your perspective and think, well, okay, what if a girl has a power in that relationship? But it might feel that way if she's dating a boy. He might feel that way, right? He may feel that oh, I think she's more attractive than me, or she's older than me, or she's had more dating experience or more partners than me. And I feel like she has the power in that situation. So, you know, that's also something that, you know, when young people become parents, they may feel, oh, well, she has the custody of my child. So if I want to see my child, I have to do whatever she wants. So that can happen as well. And people forget sometimes that Adolescent girls can also engage in sexual violence, for example, or reproductive coercion. So it's not, none of these types of dating violence are the exclusive realm of just one gender or any other aspect of identity.
0: Wow. So before we move to the next question, what are some of the tactics that the perpetrator could use that women need to know and understand? When it comes to some of this, you know, health risk behavior, sexual coercion, can you just tell us maybe in layman's terms, some of the tactics that the people, young women, adolescents should look out for?
1: Sure. And I'm a prevention researcher. So this is like right up my alley. You're speaking my language here. Um, So something that I really love to do in my research and clinical work is just talk about what healthy relationships look like and as we discussed earlier that can look different for different people and the most important thing is being on the same page with your partner or partners right so have those conversations about you know how often are we going to be in contact during the day if we go to school together are we like Going to walk to every class together? Are we going to sit together at lunch? Are we going to meet up after school or not? Because that can result in a lot of misunderstanding and hurt feelings and things can escalate from there. Also having like the DTR define the relationship talk, right? Like are we monogamous? Are we mutually exclusive? Like are we dating other people or sleeping with other people or what? Um, And defining that can also be really helpful in terms of, um, it's not going to prevent jealousy. Let's be real, right? Like people are going to feel jealous no matter what, but that's really important too. So some of the kind of red flags that I think it's important to look out for are people not respecting your boundaries, right? So if you feel like your boundaries being violated, like say somebody shows up where you are and you didn't expect them to be there and you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. That makes me feel uncomfortable." Like I'm just at the mall with my friends, like why is this guy I'm talking to here? Say that, you know, make sure that you're making your boundary clear. And then if the other person knows what your boundary is and they're still violating it, that's a red flag, right? Whether it's texting you more than you said you wanted to be texted, whether it's, you know, showing up where you are or trying to get you to do things that you told them that you don't want to do. So that touches on the sexual risk piece as well, right? So something I'm really passionate about is condom negotiation. It's kind of a funny term, but basically Anytime that you're having a sexual interaction with somebody, there's a lot of negotiation going on. And that's something that we are not trained to do growing up, right? So there's a lot of like talking about, you know, what are we okay with? Like, is it okay if I kiss you? Is it okay if I touch you here? Or there should be. Anyway, people should be asking um, for consent for things that they're doing with other people. But also at some point, if you're going to be having any kind of vaginal or anal intercourse um, or oral sex also, People are going to be thinking about maybe we should use a condom and how do you have that discussion, right? Someone has to bring it up. It's often awkward, especially if it's a new partner. So how do you talk about using condoms with your partner and how do you do it in a way where you feel like the power dynamics are kind of balanced or equal, right? And there's a lot of really loud feelings going on there. So if you wait to talk about condoms until you're in this like passionate situation with somebody you're really attracted to and you really like... And you say, oh, hey, do you have a condom? And they're like, oh, no, don't worry about that. Your feelings are going to be so strong that it's going to be really hard to be like, wait, stop. No, I don't want to do this. Right. And then that's where those power dynamics come in again as well. So if you don't have any condoms, when you're kind of out of luck, right. And if your partner says that they don't want to use one, or if your partner says, well, if you love me, then we wouldn't need to use a condom. I'm only with you. That's a really hard one to refuse. So in the programs that I work on with adolescent girls, we do like role plays with condom negotiation. And if it's talking about somebody who's like a more casual partner, then usually they have no problem in, you know, in pretending role plays, being like really assertive and being like, no, like you can go find somebody else to have sex with Then Like, what do you like better wearing a condom or not having sex at all? Right. But then if you get into a scenario where you're like, but. I really love you and I want to feel close to you and I'm not going to feel as close to you with a condom. And, you know, I'm not sleeping with anybody else. Are you like, I thought you loved me. Then it's like, Oh, what do I say to that? Those are really hard conversations to have, especially in the moment. So I think that that is another thing that um, is really important is thinking about having those conversations before, you're in those heated moments and also paying attention to if your partner is not respecting your wishes with regard to contraception and birth control and your reproductive freedom, then that's a really big red flag as well.